Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. And I should mention, before going any further, that today's podcast is sponsored by Mono. Not the disease, but the setting on my digital voice recorder that, I'm hoping, will make your listening experience more sonorous and comfortable. Now, business. Today, we're looking at a book in which there's not just something, but much to admire. Backhanded compliment? A little. This is a book where the sum of its parts is perhaps greater than the whole. And yet, the parts are often wonderful on their own. So where does that leave us? Well, keep listening. The book is Isaac Besheva Singer's Satan in Gorai, initially published in Yiddish after serialization in 1935 and translated and brought to the English-speaking world 20 years later. Prefatory note about prefaces, if I may. In Javier Marias's A Heart So White, and again in Satan and Gorai, the novel is packaged with an essayistic investigation of the works of the author and of the novels that followed. In both cases, I skipped the preface, and in both cases, I was right to. Spoilers? There are plenty. So if you don't want to know what happens in the book, you may want to give these introductions a pass. Just as importantly, the prefaces either are meant to be or inevitably become lenses that color your later reading of the book. When I'm absolutely psyched for a new book, I don't read reviews, I don't read the back cover, and I don't read the dust jacket. In short, I don't want to know that this book is a story about unrequited love, or one man's struggle against an unfair system, or what lessons a particular character learns along the way. And while these prefaces are ostensibly a publisher's way of providing the reader with some context about an almost classic, in this case, Satan and Gorai, I get the distinct feeling that it's more about putting another author's name on the cover, in case the first one doesn't carry enough weight. So after all this, might it not be better to keep prefaces out of it? True, nobody says you have to read a preface or afterward. Maybe then the accommodation is to publish the preface separately. Or for the publisher, in this case for Arstras and Giroux, to put it online, then collect a number of them into a standalone book. Although, after all this, maybe my complaint is with the author of the preface to Satan and Gorai, a scholar named Ruth Weiss, whose work is so pinched and painful to read, whose take on humor is so singularly unfunny, whose outlook on life is so miserly, that it seems a shame to pair her with a writer who is so manifestly open-hearted, kind, humorous, and full of love for his characters as Isaac Besheva Singer. This is not an odd couple. It's a mismatch. And on reflection, that's probably my biggest problem with the preface. But let's leave that in the rearview mirror and talk about the main event, Satan in Gorai. This is a book that starts in figurative mid-sentence, right in the heart of the action. The year is 1648, the date of a series of pogroms that mutilated the lives of Jews in small villages and urban quarters throughout Eastern Europe. 
This particular series of pogroms was actually the subject of a novel by a fellow Yiddish novelist, the excellent Sholem Ash, which was called Kiddush Hashem and subtitled An Epic of 1648. And if at this juncture you're wondering what a pogrom is, I'll let Beshevis Singer describe it. In the year 1648, the wicked Ukrainian hetman Bogdan Shmelnitsky and his followers besieged the city of Zamosh, but could not take it because it was strongly fortified. The rebelling Hydemak peasants moved on to spread havoc in Tomasho, Bilgorai, Krasnik, Turban, and in Gorai too, the town that lay in the midst of the hills at the end of the world. They slaughtered on every hand, flayed men alive, murdered small children, violated women, and afterward ripped open their bellies and sewed cats inside. Many fled to Lublin, many underwent baptism or were sold into slavery. Gorai, which once had been known for its scholars and men of accomplishment, was completely deserted. The marketplace, to which peasants from everywhere came for the fair, was overgrown with weeds. The prayer house and the study house were filled with dung left by the horses that the soldiers had stabled there. Most of the houses had been leveled by fire. For weeks after the raising of Gorai, corpses lay neglected in every street, with no one to bury them. Savage dogs tugged at dismembered limbs, and vultures and crows fed on human flesh. The handful who survived left the town and wandered away. It seemed as though Gorai had been erased forever. Nor does all this end with the pogroms. In the years after 1648, old inhabitants of the decimated Gorai return alone or in small groups, fractions of the families and neighborhoods that used to live in the village. And as they return, Besheva Singer takes the opportunity to elucidate on some of their personal histories. There is the rabbi, Benish Ashkenazi, who, to quote the novel, left two daughters and five grandchildren behind in the cemetery in Lublin. There is the one-time wealthiest citizen of Gorai, Reb Eliezer Babad, whose older, married daughter, again to quote, had first been raped by the Cossacks and then impaled on a spear. Eliezer Babad's wife had died during the epidemic that followed the pogrom, and their son had simply disappeared. The young men who came back to the town prop up rotting facades and collapsing roofs of the buildings, and in trying to unblock the current of the local river, they end up fishing bones from the water. The visceral and the graphic elements of the story caught me off guard. I did not expect this guttural prose out of a writer working in the early 1930s, writing in Yiddish, in a culture that I associated, obviously mistakenly, with being closer to the domain of the sacred, the prayer house, than to the realm of the profane, secular, urban society. Lesson here, don't make assumptions. I just wish somebody had imparted me this piece of advice before now. In the wake of 1648, things do, however, look better. Of course, they could hardly look worse. The aforementioned rabbi Benish Ashkenazi, who is not some small-time beard grower, but the latest in a great line of scholars, works to re-establish the religious pieties of the village. Ashkenazi is a strict, conservative man. He is widely respected in Gorai, and he quickly develops a sizable following of young scholars, which was the mark of any good religious leader of that time. Having said that, the village does not move past 1648. Even within this community of Jews, which had been marginalized, threatened, dispersed, and which had made marginalization, life under threat, and dispersal a part of its identity. 1648 represented a massive, unprecedented rupture. There was no repairing it, no seeking closure for it. Insofar as life in Gorai went on, it did so with the events of 1648 coursing through it. 
And as a result, the people of this village, and presumably many like it, struggled to reconcile the catastrophe of the pogroms with their worldview. What, they asked themselves, had they done to deserve such brutal punishment? The typical conservative response, the response of Rabbi Ashkenazi, was that the people had strayed from God's law and the violence of the pogroms were God's terrible reward for their transgressions. But there are others in Gorai who interpreted 1648 according to a separate, contrasting set of beliefs. They were followers of the Jerusalem rabbi Isaac Luria. Today, when we think of Luria, if we think of Luria, we think of him as a man of the Middle Ages. But in the context of the Gorai of the novel, Luria, who died in 1572, was relatively new on the scene. Isaac Luria was a mystic, and his great legacy was the systematic elucidation of the Kabbalah. Without getting too deeply into it, because once you get into it, you tend not to get out of it. Exhibit A, Grandpa Harry. The Kabbalah is an interpretation of sacred Jewish texts. Kabbalists will engage in everything from numerology, assigning numbers to letters to see codes hidden in words, to creating their own metaphysical explanations about the relationship between the divine and his, always his, works. So, for example, beneath the story of creation as we know it, let there be light, land, etc., there is the Kabbalist's understanding of creation, a parallel tale involving shades and shadows between this world and the next, where everything is a sign of something else. But I've already said more than I intended. In Seven Nights, Jorge Luis Borges has a short essay on the Kabbalah if you want to go further. Now, while the traditional rabbinic interpretation and the Kabbalistic one are not antithetical to each other by nature, the word Kabbalah comes from the same root as the word for tradition, Rabbi Ashkenazi is wary of the Kabbalists that he sees spreading up around him in Gorai, and the rabbi is right to be wary. After all, the Kabbalists are providing an alternative explanation for 1648, and these alternative explanations suggest that there are alternative responses to this cataclysm, responses that do not include a return to piety, God's law, and prayer. In fact, they suggest the opposite. For the Kabbalists and their followers, the darkness of 1648 was in fact prelude to the light of salvation. That's right, they say. The Messiah is coming. In fact, his arrival is imminent, like really imminent, as in just over the horizon. Between the just pray harder approach and the kick back everything's going to be all right approach, the people go for the latter. Rumors begin to spread, and Besheva Singer eagerly reports them to the reader. The greatest Kabbalists in Poland and other lands uncovered numerous allusions in the Zohar and in antique Kabbalistic volumes, proving that the days of the exile were numbered. Chmelnitschki's massacres were the birth pangs of the Messiah. According to a secret formula, these pangs were destined to begin in the year 1648 and extend till the end of the present year. In almost every town, one person ran about testifying that the Jews would all soon be redeemed. Some declared that they would hear the great ram's horn being blown, signifying the end of days. Others aroused the people to return to God, reckoning up their own as well as the sins of others. Still others danced in the street for joy and beat drums. Ordinary women dreamed remarkable dreams. Dead kin told them all about the wonders that would soon occur. Sleeping and waking, people saw that pauper who was to be the Messiah. They heard Elijah the prophet call, Redemption cometh to the world. A great cloud lowered, and all the Jews with their wives and children sat on it to fly to Jerusalem. And as it is throughout Poland, it is also in Gorai, where a highly respectable woman, in the narrator's words, 
brings the good news to the town, news that trees have begun to sprout enormous fruit in the Holy Land, that golden fish had suddenly appeared in the Dead Sea, and that even the Gentile aristocracy of Poland, sensing the approaching reign of the Messiah, were showering their Jewish serfs with gifts. Throughout Garai, Messiah fever is catching. Even if some are still immune, the rabbi and his followers, first and foremost. With neither side happy to live and let live, though, battle lines are drawn. On the one side, the conservative rabbi Banish Ashkenazi and his considerable number of followers. On the other side, the Kabbalists and their followers. Merely a theological argument? Not at all. It quickly turns into a political argument, and then into a war. The Kabbalists up the ante. Having predicted the Messiah's imminent arrival, it is now declared the Messiah is among us, treading the same ground as us. And what's more, he has a name, Sabbatai Zevi. Rabbi Ashkenazi declares the notion heresy, and his next move is to ban the followers of Sabbatai Zevi from the prayer house. This, of course, is mere incitement. The followers of the Messiah not only come to the prayer house, they arrive in numbers looking for trouble. For many years, Reb Mordecai Joseph had been the rabbi's enemy. He hated him for his learning, envied him his fame, and never missed an opportunity to speak evil of him. At the yearly Passover wrangle, he would incite the people to break Rabbi Benish's window panes, crying that the rabbi had only his reputation in mind and gave no thought to the town. The thing that chiefly vexed Reb Mordecai Joseph was that Rabbi Benish forbade the study of the Kabbalah. In defiance, Reb Mordecai Joseph called the rabbi by his first name. And now, Reb Mordecai Joseph hammered on his lectern, inciting controversy. Benish is a heretic, he shouted, a transgressor against the Lord of Israel. An old householder who was one of the rabbi's disciples ran over to Mordecai Joseph and struck him twice. The blood streamed from Mordecai Joseph's nose. Several young people jumped up and grabbed their belts. The cantor pounded on the stand and commanded them not to interrupt the prayers, but he was ignored. Benish is a heretic, roared Mordecai Joseph. Holding on to his crutch, he bent over and hopped forward with insane speed. May he be torn from the earth, root and all. Drops of blood shimmered on his fire-red beard. His low forehead, parchment yellow, was furrowed. Reb Senderel of Zilkov, an ancient foe of the rabbi, suddenly screamed, Rabbi Benish cannot oppose the world. He has always been a man of little faith. Apostate, someone shouted. It was hard to tell whether referring to the rabbi or his opponents. Disruptor! Sinner that leadeth the multitude to sin! The world's aflame! Mordecai Joseph kept pounding with his fists. Benish the dog denies the Messiah! Sabbatai Zevi is a false Messiah! A high boyish voice cried out. Everyone looked around. It was Hanina, the charity scholar. He was one of Rabbi Benish's brilliant students. Tall, overgrown, nearsighted, with a long pale face and a chin sprouting with yellow hair. Now he stood there, bent over his study stand, his near-blind eyes blinking, waiting with a silly smile for someone to come and argue with him. Mordecai Joseph, who bore Hanina a grudge on account of the many folios of the Talmud he knew by heart, and because he was always mixing in where he had no right, suddenly sprang at Hanina with that agility the lame display when they flare up and forget their defect. Take him, men! Several young men ran over to Hanina, grabbed hold of his shirt, and began to drag him off. Hanina opened his mouth, shouted, tried to tear himself loose from their grip, twisted his long neck back and forth, and flailed about him with his arms like a drowning man. His coat was torn, his skullcap fell off. He tried to defend himself, but the charity students were quick to hold his head, punching him with their weak hands as they helped carry him. 
Mordecai Joseph himself proudly helped carry Hanina by the legs, spitting into his face and pinching him viciously. Soon Hanina was lying on the table. They lifted his coattail. Mordecai Joseph was the first to do the honors. Let this be in place of me, he cried, in the words of the Yom Kippur scapegoat ritual. He rolled up his sleeves and gave Hanina so hard a blow that the unlucky youth burst all at once into tears like a schoolboy and whimpered. Let this be instead of me, Mordechai Joseph exclaimed with a sigh and again struck Hanina. Let this fowl go to his death, and a hail of blows fell on the idle scholar. I truly shudder as I hear that. Not because the scholar could be me, I'm not tall like he is, but because those cries coming from mid-17th century Gorai sound familiar, and because the violence still shocks me. Blood in the prayer house, the character Mordechai, a follower of the cult of the Messiah, striking his fellow man in the face repeatedly, intoning the biblical apologia, let this be in place of me. The sheer excess of mania paired with the religious justification for aggression, this is not an original combination. It's a familiar one, and all the more potent for being so. As could be inferred from the title of the novel, Satan and Gorai, things don't get better. Those who oppose the coming rule of Sabbatai Zevi are pursued and ravaged, declared abhorrences to the flesh, and this comes, eventually, to include the rabbi himself. Besheva Singer's description of the rabbi's extinction, for it is more than a physical death, assaults the reader once again. The way it's described, it is not an individual or a gang that is responsible for the rabbi's end, but the wind, the village roads, the cold. In other words, nature, or the world, or perhaps God. It is a scene of terror, one that seems to confirm the precipitous, outrageous fall of Gorai. The loss of the rabbi leaves his followers forsaken and defenseless. The authority that was vested in him is commandeered by others, Kabbalists, followers of Sabbatai Zevi, and people who believe that with the arrival of the Messiah comes the end of obeying the laws. All these ideas, which ran counter to the rabbi's notion of the dour, dutiful, but good life, these are the new order in Gorai. Every few chapters, another New Age prophet comes to the village to proclaim the Messiah is closer to his destination. The citizens of the village are encouraged to rejoice, and the rejoicing quickly takes on the form of hedonism, orgies, rape, the terrorizing of non-believers. Any number of the following scenes would fit into the satyricon without any trouble. The way Besheva Singer portrays the prophets who come to Gorai makes it clear he thinks they are selling snake oil. Only the prophets themselves don't know it. And it's because they believe fervently in their prophecies that they make for excellent characters. Sabbatai Zevi is approaching the Ottoman Empire, they say. He is meeting with the Sultan and is getting ready to convert him. As unlikely as it all seems, the prophets believe every word that comes from their mouths because of their faith in God. If God can punish terribly, as in 1648, he can reward inexplicably. When he puts his power to work, he can accomplish anything. On top of that, the best of these prophets, Reb Gedliah, appears to be a good person and was taken into the heart of the villagers in a way that would have been foreign to the aloof Rabbi Ashkenazi. Remarkable things were done by Reb Gedaliah, and his kindness was renowned. He was extremely charitable and would rise from bed in the middle of night to tend the sick. Though an important man, he would roll up his sleeves when it was necessary to massage men and women alike with aqua vita and turpentine. He jested with the ill, forcing them to laugh and forget their pains. 
An expert at solving complex puzzles, he could write a row of words that might be read from top to bottom as well as the usual Hebrew right to left. He showed housewives who came to visit him how to put up new kinds of preserves, taught girls how to work on canvas and embroider. The elders waited at the town meeting to hear his views. The women required his advice on how to obtain dowries for orphan girls. It was he whom the Lord of Gorai had licensed to levy and collect taxes. Emissaries brought him letters from the Sabbatai Zevi sect in Zamosh and Ludomir. Rich men from other towns pleaded for his salves and positions. Persons possessed, brides under a spell, children with blown-up bellies were brought to him. The table in Reb Gedaliah's room was piled high with sheaves of parchment, goosequill pens, hailstones from heaven, balls of devil dung. There was always a pot of leeches handy, and somewhere in the room, Reb Gedaliah had a scroll inscribed with the names of angels and demons. Young men frequently came to study the circulars of Nathan and Gaza and Abraham Hayachini. Reb Gedaliah trained these young men in the magical science of drawing wine from walls and transporting themselves from place to place according to a Kabbalistic formula. The frenzy in the village mounts, and as the end of the year approaches, and the end of the exile is, according to the predictions, upon the Jews of Gorai, the citizens become delirious with excitement. Gorai was elated. Every few days there was another wedding. Twelve-year-old brides walked the streets with swollen bellies, for pious women saw to it that their daughters and sons-in-law lay with each other often. Reb Gedaliah's calculations were that the ram's horn would announce the coming of the Messiah in the middle of the month of Elul, and three days before Rosh Hashanah, a cloud would descend and the pious would climb aboard and be off to the land of Israel. As the month of Elul approached, the faith of the people of Gorai grew stronger. Shopkeepers no longer kept shop. Artisans suspended their labors. It seemed useless to complete anything. Since they were too slothful to gather firewood in the forest, they acquired the habit of heating their ovens with the lumber they had available. By winter they would be settled in Jerusalem, and so they tore down fences and outhouses for kindling. Some even ripped the shingles from their roofs. Many refused to undress when they retired at night. The awaited cloud might come when they were asleep, and they did not wish to be forced to dress in a hurry. In Reb Gedel Hasid's house, the books had been wrapped in a sheet, as after a fire, and thrice daily their owner stepped outside to look toward the east for some sign of the cloud. He would cover his eyes, as though to protect them from too strong a light, and cry, Father in heaven, save us now. We have not the strength to wait longer. Custom, civility, manners, honor, decency, all fly out the window as families break apart, holidays go unobserved, children uncared for and unfed, the prayer house left untended. The citizens of Gorai, the men and women of faith, participate wholeheartedly in their decline. A community that was terribly desecrated at the start of the story desecrates itself anew in a different, but still profound, way. I won't say any more except that if the ending is equal parts expected and unexpected, then the revelation that Sabbatai Zevi and the Messiah fever that swept over the villages and cities of Eastern Europe post-1648 was historically factual. That was a turn I didn't expect. It happened, and perhaps like the Messiah fever that swept through Judea around the time of Christ, a time of similar occupation and degradation only by the Romans, this terrible Messiah fever peaked, and for a long time afterwards, there has been no similar clamoring, if you ignore the Lubavitch. 
What Besheva Singer shows the reader, among other things, is that when this sickness catches, the results are dire. Any person devoted to reason suffers, to some degree or another, a blind spot that tells him or her that reason, after all, will prevail. Because reason is, in the end, logical, grounded in reality, and therefore, right. This book, however, makes the reader directly face the world where unreason, anti-reason, faith, is in control. And once faith gains the upper hand, there's no reasoning out of it. The uselessness of reason is one of the more powerful experiences of reading this often very good, always telling book. If I don't endorse Satan and Gorai wholeheartedly, it's because of what I mentioned earlier about the origins of the book. It was serialized in journals before published. And while any number of great books has started as a serial, Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris comes to mind, it showed in this novel. There was a formulaic structure to the contents of the chapters, and a number of plot elements were repeated once too often, as if the author was trying to bring up to date a reader who hadn't been paying attention or missed an episode. Having said that, this introduction to Besheva Singer has acquainted me with a writer who has some serious punch in his pen, and is able to bring life to anything that enters his field of attention. His writing is imaginative, lively, and potent. I dig it. Next up on Burning Books is something a little different. Not the discussion of a book in its entirety, but of a scene in a book. One of the most amazing scenes that the author ever wrote. That would be the so-called glove-making scene in Philip Roth's American Pastoral, and we will be talking about it with the American literature professor Menachem Feuer, who has both professional and personal insight into the scene and the novel in general. In the meantime, I want to thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch, drop me a note, nasty or nice, either via Twitter, at BurningBooksPod, or email. The address is BurningBooksPod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Taking you to places you haven't even dreamed about. This is Radio Litopia. A world in your ear.